T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. A year ago, almost to the day, we'd just undergone a surprising presidential election after a highly charged campaign, and we looked at how some of the statements, plans, and promises made by then-president-elect Donald Trump squared with the U.S. Constitution. We also looked at the powers of a president and the limits on those powers. Well, now a year into Mr. Trump's presidency, we're going to take a look back and forward to the future. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guests this weekend are the expert lawyers who joined me in the discussion a year ago. They approached this subject from different points of view, but as we showed last year, the law is the law in most cases. Here in the WBBM studios are Colleen Connell, Executive Director of the American Civil Civil Liberties Union of Illinois, and David Applegate, partner with the Chicago law firm of Williams, Montgomery & John. Ms. Connell has been the ACLU Illinois Director since 2001. She started in that office way before that and headed the Reproductive Rights Project. She oversees the ACLU's litigation efforts in this area uh, on a variety of issues. David Applegate heads the Intellectual Property Group at Williams, Montgomery & John, where he's been since 2003. He is an expert not only in things like copyrights and trademarks, but also civil rights. He's uh, affiliated with conservative and libertarian groups such as the Heartland Institute, the Heritage Foundation, and the Federalist Society. And welcome back to both of you. Thanks, Craig. Good to be here. Yeah. Thank you, Craig. I echo Colleen's sentiments. Pleasure to be here. Well, thank you. Uh, who knew? <laughs> we we knew we would have something to talk about. Who knew it would be this much? David Applegate, I'm going to start with you, because when you were here last year, you predicted that at least legally, Donald Trump wouldn't be as bad as his critics predicted and not as good as his supporters hoped. Um, so in general, how would you assess his uh, performance a year in? In general, I think that's been borne out, Craig. Uh, we can get into some specific examples as we go along. Overall, I would give this president probably about a B minus from his supporter standpoint. From his uh, adversary standpoint, he probably gets uh, an, an F or an F minus, but those are largely policy differences. I think this is a president who is starting from a very low base of knowledge in terms of the way Washington and politics works, but I think he's learning very quickly. And Colleen Connell? Uh, I continue to think he is an existential threat to our democracy. Um, I think that in addition to his low level of knowledge of how Washington works, he has a complete lack of knowledge about the Constitution and the laws of this land and that his disrespect and disregard for the norms of our democracy, including respect for other branches of government, um, his attacks on federal judges, his attacks on members of Congress, um, just continue to show that he is unfit for office. 
Well, let's let's talk about some of the uh, specific actions and reactions as they have come up. Um, let's talk first about um, what even he at some points has called a travel ban, and uh, that's restrictions on travel here uh, on uh, people from predominantly Muslim countries. Now, it was struck down uh, by lower courts, rewritten, struck down. Then uh, going to the Supreme Court has been upheld. It worked its way through the system. Uh, Isn't that as it should have happened or not? Uh, David, let me let you take the first crack at it. Again, Craig, I think that's exactly the way it should have happened. Uh, It reflects my view that this president is learning. It reflects my view that the Constitution is very strong, that it works the way it's intended to. Um, and, and I think it uh, disproves uh, Colleen's premise that this president or any president is an existential threat to democracy because we have a Constitution that works. And in particular, I think what President Trump has, has shown to my dismay and the dismay of many in the conservative movement, if I may call it that, is more personal uh, disrespect for people with whom he he disagrees, whether it's denigrating Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or whether it's it's someone on the left. But he has actually shown great deference to Congress and to the courts. And the courts are stepping in where they need to. And if structurally anything good comes out of this presidency, which I think it probably will uh, by the end of his term, it is going to be that Congress is going to be stepping up to reclaim the role that had largely been surrendered to both the courts and to the presidency over the course of the last three or four administrations, possibly going back as far as Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Colleen Connell, are you satisfied with with the process? That has occurred on. The- um, so it, it's a mixed answer, uh, Craig. Uh, the ACLU has filed 56 lawsuits um, in the 11 months of the Trump administration. And um, those lawsuits, um, which include um, challenges to um, the three different Muslim bans on, on immigration and refugees, um, really, again, underscore um, that this president. Um, neither understands nor in some ways cares about um, the, the limits of the law. Um, the, you know, the, the documented stories about the first two Muslim bans um, evidence the fact that he did not go through the usual channels of the Department of Justice um, and um, you know, really give the kind of thought to how you carefully craft something um, you know, to achieve your goal you know, to achieve constitutional muster. And as he himself has said, they were Muslim bans, which violates, obviously, um, the, the First Amendment to the Constitution. Um, but the guardrails in some important respects have held. Um, the first two Muslim bans were struck down by the court. The administration rewrote them. And even though the Supreme Court lifted the stay the other day on enforcement, um, the lower court litigation proceeds. And we don't really have a ruling by the Supreme Court know, fully on the merits. Um, And so I I think that the courts are in some ways really continuing their intended role under the Constitution of saying what the law means and what the law is. But I profoundly disagree with David's notion that um, Trump respects um, the federal judiciary. Um, You know, he has 
criticized um, rulings that he doesn't like on very personal terms that call into question the competence and the heritage of judges. Um, and when you take a look at some of his nominees to the federal bench, um, I think that um, the recent statements by both um, the Republican um, head of the Judiciary Committee, um, Senator Grassley, and the um, questioning by the um, Republican senator from Louisiana um, show, again, a, a president who is not taking care um, to put well-qualified um, people on the federal bench. So um, the guardrails thus far are holding, but he's also doing some significant damage. And I think, you know, the yesterday or the day before his um, development on, you know, sort of the erosion of the net neutrality protections is, you know, again, one of those areas in which, um, you know, there's some fundamental problems here. Um, David, uh, David Applegate, have you been concerned with the uh, president's occasional lashing out at at the courts when he sees, and and specifically judges, when he sees rulings that he doesn't like? It's, it's my personal view, uh, Craig, that, uh, as I've said before, I, w- I wish someone would cut off the president's Twitter finger. And I, I hope the FBI doesn't take that seriously because I don't want to be investigated. I mean, no threat of harm. But I, obviously, it, this is an impulsive president who leaps to Twitter to express his personal views, to engage his base, to speak over the heads of the media, essentially. Uh, but I, I don't see this as an attack on the judiciary. I recall uh, cases in which the Obama administration, which was frequently overturned by the courts, uh, in one case when President Obama's White House spokesman said, well, the constitutional lawyer in the White House disagrees. What Trump is doing is essentially the same thing. He's not doing it on as sophisticated a level, speaking in those kind of terms. But President Obama's base and President Trump's base were entirely different. So they're, they're speaking to different audiences Let me in, write, in different sorry. ways. Let me raise an, an, another issue that, that, that's close to this, um, because a lot of the times what actual policies are emanating from the White House are different from what the president says. Uh, and And frankly, what the president says is something very different from what even would emanate, and I'm going to take the issue of free speech. Uh, President President Trump had talked about action against uh, NFL teams that allow players to protest during the national anthem. Uh, He also uh, talked about freedom of the press. He wanted to threaten the licenses of networks over fake news. for the record, networks are not licensed. Uh, stations are, like this one. Uh, but be that as it may, the idea was that there should be some kind of restriction on the media. Those are troubling things to hear, but are they necessarily a threat to the to democracy because they're said? Oh, Colleen? So, uh, again, you hope the guardrails hold. Um, but the president's um, threats um, about the AT&T and Time Warner merger, um, 
and the question about whether the Department of Justice hears those observations and then takes action indicates that um, you know some voices speak louder than others, and when um, the president speaks, um, everybody listens, even if he's only ostensibly talking to his base, as David suggested. And I would just put as as sort of an addition on that, um, as um, both Trump and his advisors have say, said, they consider Trump's Twitter's uh, announcements or his tweets to be, uh, you know, the official communications of the president. And so I, I think that um, what the president says we need to take seriously, as even his own advisors have said. And I think that it is unseemly and, again, completely at odds, not only with the, the, the federal laws, but the Constitution, you know, for the president to go after um, the, um, the freedom of the press or the free speech rights of Americans. And um, it just underscores my firm belief um, that um, he is a threat to our democracy because he does not value for others, other than perhaps himself and some members of his base, um, the rights that are enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, David, let me let me let me ask you in frame it this way: Is it not something of a danger? when a president strongly states a position and the agencies that are uh, that are charged with overseeing whatever things those are, whether it be the FCC or, or anything else, those are appointed. Those are people who are appointed by the president. Uh, is there not a danger that they may feel that they need to do his bidding? Again, I think this goes back to something that I said last year, Craig, which is that Trump's supporters take him seriously, but not literally his detractors tend to take him literally, but not seriously. And I, notwithstanding what the white house has said that yes, these tweets are the president's position on something. They are not policy. They don't make policy. The only way the president can make policy is either through executive order or by signing or vetoing legislation that's been passed by the Congress. And uh, congressional legislation, whether vetoed or passed, ultimately has to pass muster before the United States Supreme Court. So it's a, a little bit like the issue of undue command influence in the military, but I don't think that the professional heads of agencies who are extremely well qualified, uh, both the holdovers and the Trump appointees, are people who are going to be derelict in their duty to this country, to its citizens, or to the Constitution, uh, if there's something that the president says that's off kilter. Um. Colleen, you're... <laughs> Clearly don't agree. Um, and I'd start with, in, in some ways, the qualifications of many of those um, agency heads. Uh, I think serious questions have been raised um, um, uh, about their qualifications. Um, Health and Human Services, um, um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, just to name a few. Um, um, and, and I think that um, when the president talks, People listen, including his agency heads. And um, and I think that we have seen many examples of that. And I'm going to go back to the Time Warner and AT&T potential merger and, 
and what's happening with respect to the um, you know the antitrust um, division of the Department of Justice's view of that, and perhaps we can compare that to the um, announcement yesterday that Disney's going to acquire um, um, you know 21st Century um, Fox um, from Rupert Murdoch's um, network. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's it's just not right to say that the president is just sort of sitting there and tweeting into empty air and not having an impact on what happens in the federal government. Um, but, you know, I, I think that um, one of the other areas in which the guardrails have held, Craig, and that I think really merits um, some discussion is what's happening on the state levels. Because um, just to... Um, quote of uh, now deceased Supreme Court justice, um, by design of the Constitution, um, the states are the laboratories of democracy. And what we are seeing in the face of um, the Trump efforts to um, overtake um, the federal government um, is a lot of positive advocacy in defense and an expansion of civil rights and civil liberties on the state level. And we've seen several of those um, examples here in Illinois. And we will talk about some of that in just a minute. You're listening it, to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. We're talking about President Trump, Congress, and the Constitution. My guests are lawyers viewing the issues from two different perspectives. David Applegate is a partner at Williams, Montgomery, and John and works with conservative groups. Colleen Connell is director of the ACLU of Illinois. Uh, and and I, I think we should look at what is happening at the states. For one thing, it seems like every state at some point or another has filed a lawsuit mm-hmm. on something. Uh, and whether it's Texas filing, you know, for, for things that are in support of what the president wants to do to Illinois filing against him. Uh, is that uh, is that healthy? Uh, it's extremely healthy, Craig. And this to me. What, what Colleen has just hit on is actually what I believe is the most significant contribution structurally that the Trump presidency will make to the future of the American Democratic Republic experiment. Because the history of this republic from the Woodrow Wilson administration on, um, a, a full century at this point, has been the growth, expansion, and power of the federal government into everything from uh, grade school curricula to who can use what uh, bathrooms and locker rooms and high schools to almost uh, the the area of marriage, uh, about which the Constitution actually says nothing and in which Congress has no delegated power. Uh, Conservatives have been arguing for years, decades, that the American Constitutional Compact is a compact with vertical and horizontal separation of powers. We've been talking about the presidency versus the judiciary versus the legislature, but there's also the federal government and the state government and local governments. And I think anything that pushes government back to the state and local levels and an interest in the citizens in government at the state and local levels is a good thing. And so perhaps it's taken what uh, uh, Colleen regards as an existential threat to make people realize that this is where the strength of our democracy lies. I think that's a positive contribution, whether you regard the man in the White House as a good guy or a bad guy. 
Uh, let, let's follow up on that. So, uh, so um, I'm going to I'll t- perhaps quibble with whether the Constitution is really a compact. I think political scientists don't really look at that. But I think there are some very positive things that are happening in some states. Um, I'd rather live in Illinois than I would in perhaps Mississippi or Texas um, because our constitutional structure, as you well know, Craig, the federal constitution is a floor, not a ceiling um, of protected rights. And so in states like Illinois, which have a more modern constitution um, and have a progressive um, state government in many respects, um, we've been able in the years since um, Trump has um, been elected, we've been able to use the state legislative process to, um, for example, um, secure expanded Medicaid funding for abortion, um, to allow people who are transgender to change the gender marker on their birth certificates. We've done a significant reform of the civil asset forfeiture um, system legislatively that really protects the property, the due process and the property rights of people who live in Illinois. Now, unfortunately, as we see Trump um, and his administration try to attack and lower the floor of federal protections, as we've seen in the area of reproductive rights, LGBT rights, voting rights, immigrant rights, those of us who live in states where there is respect for civil rights and civil liberties are able to use the the machinery um, that our federal structure creates in a positive way. But for citizens who, of this country who live elsewhere, um, the picture isn't quite so rosy. So I'm um, always the optimist, and I think that, um, you know, there are more of us than there are of them, and we will continue, you know, here in Illinois and in places like Minnesota and California and New Mexico and the state of Washington to push forward. But I think that as citizens of an entire country, we have to be concerned about our counterparts who live in states that aren't as protective. Well, David, I saw you uh, looking at the Constitution itself as uh, as uh, as Colleen was talking. Uh, uh, well, I I was going to pick up on the the point that Colleen made about the federal government being a floor versus a ceiling. The Ninth Amendment to the Constitution, which is part of the Bill of Rights and and regarded really as part of the original Constitution, even though it wasn't ratified for a couple years later. Uh, Article 9 says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And, of course, if we look at the Declaration of Independence, which is the wellspring of the Constitution, it says we're all endowed with certain human rights, and it doesn't pretend to give an exhaustive list. And then, of course, Amendment 10, which um, conservatives have been arguing about for years and liberal law professors have been teaching for decades, doesn't mean anything because... Uh, the federal government can do everything and, and just whatever is left is to the states. But it's actually very powerful. It says the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So it is up to the states and, and the people to decide many of these things. And I would disagree with Colleen's characterizations, perhaps, of, of uh, some of these different policies, what's good, what's bad. Uh, but, but in particular, I, I'm disappointed to hear this characterization of us and them, that there are more of us than there are of them. Because I regard us as all uh, citizens of equal de- dignity and human worth. 
who are all partners in this great experiment that we call representative democracy. And we should, we should not see it as us and them. We should be looking for common ground, and we should be looking for the things that matter to all of us. Things like a place to call home, somebody to share it with, and as I've heard it put, a job we don't hate too much. I think we all share those same basic goals and ideals, and, and I would like to see more working across the aisle, not only in the Congress, which is where the action should be, but on the level of people to people. But let me ask you, and then I'll, I'll give, ask Colleen to follow up, but is there not uh, a role for the federal government to step in when there are geographic differences, when, for example, a state, because of its population, may not offer sufficient protection to a uh, either minority views or minority people. Uh, you know, in other words, shouldn't the federal government step in if, if, if people in Mississippi or, or Alabama are being denied a right to vote, doesn't the federal government need to step in even if this is a state's issue? It, absolutely. Uh, but we have to distinguish between uh, constitutional rights and protections where the, where the federal government always has a role uh, versus simply public policy choices. And uh, many of the so-called social issues, uh, social welfare programs, how much money you want to devote to child care, these kinds of things, these are policy issues that the people and the states under the Constitution are perfectly able to decide for themselves. What the, what the federal government says and what the Constitution says is if you have this kind of program, you may then not deny it to people on the basis of some constitutionally protected category, whether it's race, creed, national origin, or whatever. I'm going to think you're going to agree with most of that. Um, I'm going to agree with um, quite a lot of it, but I'm going to go back to um, the 14th and 15th Amendment, um, which... Um, um, can impose some additional restraints on state action and which also give the federal government um, and also the state governments to enact legislation in furtherance of um, those basic constitutional rights. And Craig, you were exactly right. Um, you know, when we take a look at, you know, if, if citizens in Mississippi or Alabama are denied the right to vote, um, shouldn't the federal government step in? And that's exactly what happened with the enactment of the, obviously, the Voting Rights Act of 65 and all of its renewals since then. And what is so troubling about the Trump administration is its willingness to really attack that floor of basic constitutional rights or statutory rights that have been enacted to protect those constitutional rights. And when I said there are more of us than I of them, I'm really in some ways referencing the um, recent election results where I think a lot of people stood up and said, we do care about these fundamental rights. And, and I think that um, um, the thing that binds us together about Americans is the fact that we share a constitution. We may not share a race. We may not share a common you know, ethnic heritage. Um, but we do share our support for the Constitution. And what I find so damning about the Trump administration is its consistent willingness um, to marginalize those of us who are women, those of us who are people of color, and those of us who often don't express the same religious or political views that the president holds. I, you're going to end up probably with the last word because we only have a minute left. 
Say something to hearten those people I, who feel that they may be disenfranchised. <laughs> um, first of all, I, I disagree that uh, the Trump administration is hostile to uh, people who feel they've been marginalized. I think that we are going to see through the economic policies of this administration, including the uh, upcoming tax reform bill, the improvement in the uh, employment rate, decline of the unemployment rate. I think we're going to see tremendous growth and opportunity. And I think that the divisions that the Trump election has sort of pointed out are actually going to help to bring us together by recognizing what we do have in common as opposed to what we disagree with. And that is how we end our discussion. Uh, and th- we should do this again in another year. Uh, I, would I, love I, I think. Our pleasure. <laughs> I would like to thank Colleen Connell of the ACLU and David Applegate with Williams Montgomery and John for uh, spending this time with us and and really giving us a nice look at uh, at how the law really figures into your lives. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That is cbschicago.com. Just follow the audio links. And you can also find our podcast on radio.com. I will be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for twenty-five dollars per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. Five dollars more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at twenty-four monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. Thirty-five dollars per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.